Welcome to Sex Communication, a project aimed at changing how people talk about sex. It features audio recordings of sex acts, extremely frank conversations, and many confessionals. Please note that our content is explicit and uncensored. And while these episodes may indeed arouse you, the intent is to inform and inspire. Join us now for a judgment and shame-free exploration of sex. Sexy, sexy, sex stuff. Sex. Hello and welcome to episode 81. Today is part one of a two-episode interview with C. About a year ago, C came out as a trans woman. C is in her early 50s, and prior to her transition, she spent decades struggling with her own identity and sexuality. In today's portion of the interview, we discuss her early sexual history, her two marriages, and how she's navigated the awkward reality of transitioning in public, including what it was like to come out to her friends and at work. In next week's episode, we discuss what it was like with her family and what it's like navigating sex and dating as essentially a new person. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Here's part one. Hi, how are you? I'm good, Brianne. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's very good to see you. It's good to see you too. It's been a while. A long time. I was thinking about that. At least 15 years, possibly closer to 20. We've known each other at least like really close to 20. I think 20 years. We've known each other 20 years. Yes. And a lot has happened for you. A lot of changes. A lot of changes in my life. So how did you learn about sex? I mean, I imagine having, growing up with siblings, like they probably played a bigger part in your sex education than say your parents or even friends. Yeah, not so much. You know, I I, I learned about sex. I, I stole a copy of The Joy of Sex out of my parents' library. And I like read it from, from end to end mm-hmm. and like all the illustrations and everything like that. And, you know, I mean, God, I must have been you know, in fifth grade or sixth grade or something like that. And mm. then it would seem like it was this interminable wait <laughs> for intimacy. Mm. You know, it was yeah. just like, this is going to take <coughs> forever. And I just remember longing to explore years before I had the opportunity and sort of wanting, you know, flailing at these inappropriate opportunities to to try and see somebody naked or touch somebody or, or, you know, let alone like have sex. Yeah. You know, I just, like I was so interested for so long before there was any appropriate opportunity. And so was sex something that was talked about in your household? No, like I know, no, no. Where there was no conversation, there was never a conversation about the birds and the bees I don't remember ever seeing my parents like intimate or even like physically affectionate. My mm. father was very distant. Um, I think my mom, you know, wanted a little more than she was getting. Um, and, you know, as far as my brother, you know, my, my family, we didn't talk about feelings like period. We, we, we thought about yeah. things. We were intellectuals. Intellectuals <laughs> don't talk. They think. So, you know, you be quiet and think about your problems and your situations and your stuff and figure it out because we're thinking people. Yeah, I can relate to that. Um, So it was, in that sense, I think, between sort of the secrets of, you know, the molestation and then the lack of 
openness with my parents, there was this sense of secrecy mm. or maybe brewing a sense of, you know, dirtiness or depravity or something like that. Yeah. Like you didn't talk about it and if you, you know, you, you probably didn't do it and if you did do it, it needed to be, it needed to be a secret. So what was it like when you had sex for the first time? Um, it was horrifying. <laughs> it was horrible. <laughs> it was horrible. You know, I, I, I had had a, you know, I had had girlfriends, you know, and, and we had kissed and we had made out and this and that and the other thing. Um, I was dating, a, uh, I was dating somebody and I think, I think maybe I was in 10th grade 10th grade or 11th grade and girlfriend was in California and ex-girlfriend from middle school was ripping drunk at my house at a party no plans for her to leave she stayed over and we had this horribly awkward painful intercourse like you know, drunken, just falling down drunken, followed immediately by her vomiting out the window. <laughs> Sexy. Um, yeah, you know, um, I guess since we're here to have explicit conversations, yeah, no lubrication, like just bad, just bad sex. Well, everybody's dripping bad wet sex, at that age bad. though, right? It wasn't, it wasn't dripping wet and it was awkward <laughs> and things were folding in and, and, you know, there was like... One of the saloon doors <laughs> was going the wrong way. <laughs> you know, one of the saloon doors was, was running the wrong way. And, and, and so it was, you know, it was not like this magical. By then I had had like magazines and I had read about how, you know, sex was going to be and, mm-hmm. and how like the biggest problem was going to be, um, you know, not having an instantaneous orgasm. That was like, <laughs> that was what was supposed to happen. Like the parts were going to touch. Yeah. And, and boom, it was going to, you know, it was going to happen instantaneously. And, and it didn't happen. And it didn't feel like it was going to happen. Mm. And it didn't feel that good. It didn't feel good at all. Mm. Um, and I felt like I was doing something that I was obliged to do because there was this expectation, but it really, you know, I didn't really, you know, I had guilt about cheating. I had anxiety about first time. I had anxiety about their um, capacity to consent. Not that I thought about that, you know, in 10th grade or, or whatever it was. It just... You know, there were like a long list of things that were wrong with this situation and a very slender, if existing list at all, of things that were right with the situation. Um, so that, yeah, that was... <laughs> Rocky first, start. That was the first time. Well, how about the first yeah. time that it was pleasurable for you? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh... You know, that's a complicated, it's a complicated question because um, for me, I didn't, you know, I didn't have an orgasm in that first, 
time and I had sex a whole number of times after that that still like I wasn't getting off. Mm-hmm. I know you do a piece how I got off. You know, I'm like, how did I not get <laughs> off like all these times? Um, and so, you know, I had had like a number of relationships where I wasn't, I wasn't achieving orgasm. So there was a lot of sex before it wasn't unpleasant. Mm. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't getting off (laughs) at all. And, and so it was complicated. Like the first time I had an orgasm was, you know, I had probably, you know, had, had sex with uh, multiple, multiple partners Mm -hmm. by then. That was like already my thing. Like, no, I just don't come. (laughs) I don't come, you know? We can have sex forever. You (laughs) will have like 37 (laughs) orgasms. I will not have an orgasm. You know, I'll masturbate afterwards. But, um, But this is just how sex is. And, you know, I... There was a person that I had, there was a woman that I had an ongoing relationship with. I was always, like, whenever we were both single, it was, like, horrible trying to date. But when we were cheating or when I was cheating with her, then the, you know, the chemistry was really good. But it was just way too, too much. Like, I couldn't, I just couldn't allow it to be a legitimate relationship, but... You know, we had had this thing going on for for three or four years, and I think it must have been after high school um, the first time I had an orgasm. So what was different about that time? I don't know. I mean, I have to be honest. I, I was like, I did not treat them particularly well. Mm. I wasn't abusive. I wasn't physically abusive at all. But I mean, emotionally, I was mean. I was mean. And they just kept, you know, they just stayed in it. They stayed in it and they stayed in it and they stayed in it. And something about that, I think I was finally able to just lose myself and this idea of narrative, this idea that that I needed to fulfill the potential of the joy of sex, <laughs> that it needed to be this thing, it needed to be fantastic, it needed to be all these things, this idea of what it needed to be. And we had gotten to know each other well enough that it just sort of, somewhere in that, I, I drifted off and was able to just think about myself. Mm and not think about them and what I was doing for them and how good it was going to be and whether it was going to be good for them at all, which is sort of a horrible thing to say now that I'm listening to myself. But it was just so hard for me to ever just let it be about me. Yeah. Um, But selfishness to a certain degree is healthy and even necessary. I mean, a lot of like performance anxiety with sex has to do with that, like being consumed by concern for somebody else's pleasure over your own and that like psyching you out essentially and like sending all your systems into shutdown mode. You know, that, 
yeah, definitely that kind of um, that kind of sense of being outside of myself, sort of grading the performance, always grading the performance. I mean, that's something, you know, I had good relations with her, um, you know, like like physically it was good, but it just, um, you know, it just, we didn't stay together forever. And, and that inability to finish, for lack of a better term, inability to finish just you know followed me you know followed me my whole has followed me my whole life so you feel like you've never kind of gotten past it or like found what you really need to be satisfied is it and that's what it sounds like but yeah that sounds really frustrating i would say that yeah it's very frustrating you know it's it has been really frustrating and you know um as I've become more of myself, you know, so these ideas, the thing about it is today I can't look at that and not think that it's part of my trans identity and part of how um, I always felt about myself, that I wasn't comfortable with myself, that there was a role I was trying to play and that this idea of masculinity, this obligation to be masculine, to perform the masculine role, um, you know, it just, it has just became less and less appealing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess um, it's quite obvious for the two of us sitting looking at one (laughs) another, but I should let your audience know that I am a trans woman um, and that I transitioned, uh, that I made a full transition about a year, a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. It's been just about a year since I came out in public living in this role 24-7. You know, this discomfort with male identity goes all the way back to my childhood. It goes literally back to being, you know, maybe a preschooler. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the earliest dreams of, of, you know, being a mermaid. And I remember in elementary school having dreams about, um, about witches with wands and things like that and being changed Mm -hmm being magically transformed. Um, So when I think about my identity today, I see that there is a thread that runs all the way through that and that, you know, and what happened is, is a lot of my thoughts about orientation, about being bisexual, Mm. I see places where I, I, I see a lot of a lot of choices that I made that were really trying to take that opportunity to validate my female identity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this idea of the male role, this idea of the male role, of performing the male role, I mean, there's things I like about penetrating. Mm-hmm. Um, there's things I like about being penetrated. Um, there, it's not that I found, find it 
or found it unpleasant, but I never felt like I could be, I could just be openly me. Hmm. Um, and maybe not never, but, you know, if there ever was an occasion where I could tell somebody about myself, you know, it was like a hooker in Thailand, mm. you know, who probably didn't speak English and there's no emotional connection and there's no anything there. So, you know, you're like telling your secrets and you're feeling on the one hand, you're feeling that openness of like, oh, I told them everything. And on the other hand, you're like, and I have no connection <laughs> with this person whatsoever. Yeah. Right. And I've paid for time. And, and so, you know, all of those things, this searching, this searching with partners and thinking, well, maybe it's this person. I thought maybe I just, you know, maybe I just didn't feel right in my first marriage. I didn't feel right about it. And that's why I wasn't, I couldn't get off. And, and, and maybe if I just had no emotional connection to that, to the, to my partner, like I could just think about myself. Right. You know, and that didn't work, um, but I tried. And, you know, and then somewhere in there, my 30s towards the end, at the end of the first marriage, you know, um, and I'm back again dressing and going out and looking for sex. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, I need like a trans partner, you know, so I'm like, I'm doing that. Somebody trans in reverse or trans in the same parallel? Like a, a trans woman. Maybe I'd like to see what it's like to be with a trans woman because I'm attracted to women, I'm attracted to men. And, you know, um, what am I attracted to about a man? Right. You know, uh, I'm generally attracted to the idea of a penis. Um, so, so, you know, was that, that was not like the do-all, end-all of an experience, just exactly as unfulfilling and empty as, you know, all of the other times. So when you when you were reflecting on being a child and having these fantasies of, you know, a witch or, or somebody like being able to grant you this change of identity, this transformation, as a child, like what was that vision of what you would be transformed into? Was it female? I remember like as a little kid walking around in, you know, my mother's high heels. I remember sitting as a you know first grade second grade like she was at work or something and I was like sitting and putting on lipstick and just seeing what that looked like Mm -hmm. and I remember like wiping you know wearing putting on makeup and taking it off and putting on you know and searching my grandmother came to visit and and like you know looking through her drawer to see what kind of thing she wore and finding her garter belt and and I remember like desperately searching for stockings, but like I couldn't find them. So, you know, I thought it was about the clothes, I guess for a Mm. long time, I thought it was just a clothing thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was, I don't know how these things quite develop, but, but I thought, I thought it was a kink. I thought I was kinky. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I like to get a little weird once in a while. I thought maybe, you know, um, you know, going down on guys from time to time is not, you know, like that's so naughty. <laughs> it's really, really naughty. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> you shouldn't do that. And I liked the control of that. Mm. I liked the control of that. I liked, um, 
And I was really, for a long time, I was really attracted, you know, to the idea of fooling people. Mm. You know, dangerous though it might be, I, I, I liked that thought. Um, but, you know, what, you know, what was I thinking about as a child? You know, I, I think I was thinking about being on the girls' team. Remember playing Likudis with some with, at school in like first grade or second grade, you know, boys against the girls. Yeah. And there was, you know, there was a, some girl there, and we were friends. And like, I was, I put my arm. I'm like, go ahead, <laughs> go ahead, give me the cooties. I'll be on your team. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't th- this whole idea of cooties is like, <laughs> I don't care what that is. Give me the cooties. You know, and and that was really young. Yeah. You know that that motivation was really early, early stuff. I don't know how old you are in, in second grade. You're like seven years old, or mm. you know, maybe eight or nine. Like eight. Yeah. Something. I was you trying have to a do child. The math. Shouldn't you know that? <laughs> My child is twenty three <laughs> years old, and he's an <laughs> architect now. So oh. give me a break. You know, I have no <laughs> idea what it's like to have children. Um. But, you know, those were, like, really early thoughts. They were really early thoughts. And, you know, I remember wearing pantyhose in fourth grade under my jeans mm. in, like, elementary school. And, you know, I... So so I don't know, like, what was that about? Like, I definitely didn't have any clear thoughts about that. And maybe some of it was just not, like, getting a distraction from reality, from Mm -hmm. my feelings, (laughs) you know? Like, I don't want to feel this way. I'm going to do something and feel a different way or have a secret or something like that. Um, So. And you've been married twice or more? I've been (laughs) married just twice, just twice. And both relationships lasted a little over 10 years. And did they know? Were you open with them, or because it was something you were still figuring out? Was you'd kept pretty close to the chest? I was chest? always. I had gotten some advice before I before my first marriage. A good friend of mine, his father went through a really rough divorce, and he gave me the advice and said, "Every every woman," he said at the time, "every woman deserves an honest relationship." You know, every person. So mm-hmm. I'll say, every person deserves an honest relationship, and so. And so I was as open as I could be. Mm-hmm. Like I never hid the idea that um, that I like to wear heels from time to time or that I might feel a little sexier in a G-string or something like that. Yeah. You know? um, with, you know, in the first, in my first marriage, my cross-dressing, you know, like I... Shortly after my son was born, um, you know, and the relationship had gotten so distant and I was, and I was dressing and I was going out and my wife knew it mm-hmm. and she thought I was just going out to be exhibitionist or that's what she wanted to think. I certainly didn't countermand that thought, but she knew, she knew I had clothes. I had, you know, a drawer full of things. Mm-hmm. I didn't hide that stuff. I didn't. Was she hide supportive my... or just kind she, of? No, like she was like, "You can tolerant. do that over there by yourself. Don't do that with me. I don't like that. I don't yeah. want to do that. I don't. 
you know, um, I, she knew, she knew that I had sex with men. Like I didn't hide those things from her. And I, th- I thought, you know, I was doing, having some kind of elevated relationship. Yeah. Um, so I didn't hide those things. And the, in the relationships I had in between marriages, I didn't hide those things. And, and no, and I didn't hide that in my, in my second marriage. Was it better or at least more supportive or sexually compatible than the first? The second marriage was much better in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, it was much better. Um, And we had a lot of experimentation and we had a lot of, I, I had a lot of receptive sex and, you know, and we, and we, you know, we had a much more openly uh, open sexuality between us. Um, but, you know, I always wanted a little more. Now, when you say receptive sex, are you talking about like strap-ons? Strap-ons, okay. yeah, strap-ons and penetration, right. and, you know, fists and All the fun arms stuff. and <laughs> television sets and things like that, you know. Of course. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, and it was really, it was really wonderful. Mm-hmm. In, in a lot of ways, it was really wonderful. I mean, there were times that were really wonderful, and I did, you know, um, you know, very rarely having intercourse, I would have an orgasm. Like, very rare, like, you know, one hand in 10 years, you know, um, in both marriages. And, you know, so... And there were moments, and there were moments I can think of that were really genuinely passionate, fantastic moments. They were very few and far between. Mm -hmm. And I think most of that had to do with my head. So, you know, I had these agendas. I had things I wanted to do. I wanted to be, you know, I still couldn't get past this idea of, like, directing what my sex was supposed to look like or hmm. be like. And and this became, you know, it became enormously frustrating. Um, and the issues about my identity, you know, were, were clearly never going away. These thoughts would circle and accumulate and manifest like every 10 years. About every 10 years, I would find myself in a situation, you know, usually very in a very distant emotionally from my partner, Mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, thinking about trans, thinking about cross-dressing, thinking about dressing as a woman and having sex with men. And, and, you know, and I wondered... You know, I, I recognized at the end of my second marriage that this was like a pattern. Um, and I wondered, like, is, is, you know, my trans thing, is that like a mechanism for when I'm distant mm. and alone and stressed? Or is that the reason yeah. that I'm distant and alone and stressed? And what I did know was that Although I had tried to be open and honest with all of my partners about my identity and my orientation, you know, there was always this, that the, the plot was always the same. I got into a relationship 
with a nice person who wasn't self-declared as kinky or edgy or alternative or anything. And, you know, as we felt, as I felt we could trust one another, I started dropping, you know, I started like dropping clues or, or slowly disclosing, like, I can reveal this much about myself. Yeah, well, I kind of like to wear heels sometimes. Yeah, well, yeah, no, in my past, I've, I've been with guys in my past. You know, these kinds of things, like, slowly testing this out. So there was always, like, but, oh, my God, like, I could tell you so much. I could tell you so much. I fantasized about living full-time as a woman. No, wait, I can't tell you that. Mm. I can never tell you that. Because this will all be over. Was there anybody, though, that over all those years that you were able to say that to or anybody that you knew that was going through a similar... No. Did you ever seek anybody out that, you know, maybe you could ask questions, another trans woman? I... Or a support group, or I am... No. no? Like, I did this all alone, you know? I was alone. I was alone, and I was... Is it because you didn't think answers were out there, or you were scared of what the answers might be? Well, I didn't think that it was... It's a combination of things, and, you know, I, I, th- I think, I didn't believe it was possible. Mm. I just honestly didn't believe it was possible to transition. I didn't, I couldn't imagine successfully doing this. Yeah. And, you know, this notion of a job and a reputation and society, and all of that. Um, I thought maybe I could, like, divulge my desire and live closeted or something, or, like, only, you know, with the curtains drawn, I could do this. And that was kind of my goal for a long time. Yeah. Was to, you know, to be with somebody who understood but still keep it a secret, and just the two of us would keep it a secret and know how what I was really like. But, you know, I still need to keep up appearances in the world. And I remember working, you know, back when I used to have a corporate consulting situation, sitting in meetings, you know, in a really nice handmade Hong Kong tailor suit with my initials on the inside, looking around the table at the women in the meeting going, I wish I just like, I I wish I was wearing that. I would be so much, somehow some part of me would be so much more comfortable if I was just wearing that. Um, but I was like, but that's absolutely preposterous. Like, there's no reality where that can happen. There's just, like, that can, will, that can never happen. So it is just a fantasy. It's, it's literally just a, a completely implausible possibility. And, you know, that's how that was for, you know, for... Decades and decades from my 20s to my 30s, my 30s to my 40s, my 40s till I'm 50. I'm 51 now. So how is it that I'm sitting here in front of you and you're a beautiful woman? What huh. what got you from there to here? It's all Caitlyn Jenner's fault. <laughs> um, well, I think, all jokes aside, I think that that public perception has made it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. This idea of trans um, 
is in the consciousness. It's in the, what was that, the gestalt or something <laughs> like that, right? Like yeah. people know. People yeah. see something, they go, oh, that's trans. Uh, oh, okay, okay, I get that, right? So, so that kind of happened. And there were some really public, um, you know, public cases of, of people making transition that were shocking. We were shocked. We were amazed. We were disgusted. We were enthralled. Um, but it became a thing. Um, so there was that. And the other thing that happened was I got sober, you know, and this, this, um, you know, this life methodology of suppressing feelings and, and, and living a life that wasn't honest or authentic, you know, I ended that, I ended that and, and I looked at what had happened. I looked at what had happened in my first marriage. I looked at what had happened in my relationships in between. I looked at what I had done in my second marriage. And, you know, I love my ex-wife. And my ex-wife loves me. But I realized that I'd been doing exactly what I had described to you. Mm-hmm. Get into a relationship and slowly reveal. And if I could do enough... If I could do enough in a relationship, if I could be of service enough, when you found out who I really was, maybe you'd still love me enough to put up with it. Yeah. And as a sober person, I realized I never wanted to do that again. I just never wanted to ever put somebody like, it's kind of an amends that I make to my... To yourself. To myself and to my partner. Like, you know what? Like, you're right. You're right to be angry with me. There was a part of me that knew there was something wrong and that knew there was so much more than anything I I ever told you. And, yeah, maybe I couldn't see it and maybe I didn't understand it and maybe, you know, it became in me and it's not my fault. But I realized I never wanted to be in this situation again. I never wanted to be with another person another partner that I love, knowing that there were huge parts of me that I, that I, I hadn't revealed, yeah. that I wanted to reveal. I, I, I just realized I, could ne- I never wanted to do that again. And they were moving out, and I, and I, and I, I just realized, like, well, why? what are you waiting for? What am I waiting for? You know, am, I gonna, am I really going to do this again? Am I going to, you know, because I can be in relationships for 10 years. <laughs> you know, am I really going to throw another, you know, do this again and try and get with another person and slowly reveal, push this down, rationalize that it's not a part of me, rationalize that it's only a little flavor, you know, one notch on the spectrum, but it keeps coming back. I never want to do this again. I never want to be in the situation where I'm telling somebody, I do love you. I do care about you, but there's, but I'm not who you think I am, but right. I care about you. And let me make this sale because that's what it has felt like my whole life. Every time I would start to reveal parts of myself, I would have to resell the relationship. I would yeah. have to resell this notion that I do care about you and that, and that the feelings I have are legitimate and that it's the identity that you don't understand. Um, I just, I, I determined that I, I would never do that again. I wouldn't put myself through that, and I wouldn't put another person through that. 
and that I had to find out what it would be like to start exploring identity. And I thought it was going to go slow. Yeah. I thought I was just going to maybe have like a nice manicure and some, you know, tight-fitting jeans and some weird shoes or something <laughs> like that, you know, like maybe I'd wear an earring. If you once once everyone on planet Earth was okay with my nails, I could like wear some earrings and mm-hmm. once everyone was okay with my nails and my earrings, I might like wear a top that made you wonder and then, you know, in Two, three, four, five years later, you know, I was going to, once everyone was comfortable, everyone else was okay with me, then I could, like, take the next little step, and this was going to be, like, a five-year plan of, like, slowly maybe coming out, depending on how I felt about it. Um, And what happened was I got a taste. I went on vacation. So I started. So I started. And when you say you started hormones or just no i started i started this notion of saying fuck the rest of the world and what the rest of the world thinks mm-hmm. i need to move forward and that started with my toenails and i started getting my toenails painted mm-hmm. and i you know built up the courage to go to the salon and like by myself and sit down and be like yeah i want give me a French manicure on my toes Mm -hmm. and like got used to that. I got to be a regular, you know, at some place far away from home, (laughs) you know, and like do that. Like, no, I do this and I don't care what you think. I don't care what you think. And that was like the first little step. And then somewhere, you know, that was in like January or February, you know, that might've been like before I had actually gotten sober, I had already started doing that. March I got sober and then by June I was thinking about getting like a manicure but just buff my nails just buff them but you know what like I want the end square like I want the end square but just buff them and then I was like you know that's kind of bullshit so I'm like you know what fuck it like I'm you know I have a little time give me a French manicure like give me a French manicure on my nails so that's June July I'm getting manicures um I'm like doing things with my hands so people won't really notice and stuff. But people notice. I know now. <laughs> I know now from talking to people, like people notice, right? But I'm, I'm thinking maybe they won't notice. I'm, I'm sober by now. Um, and, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm buying like some jeans. Like I could buy, like I could wear women's jeans. You know, I could wear like some women's clothes and, and like have my nails. And like this top is kind of like, I don't know whose top that is. Like I could wear that. Mm. You know, I could do that, and and and, and thinking about thinking about um, like what an outfit might be. Mm-hmm. What you know, what could an outfit? Do I have any clothes? And starting to think about like things that I might wear and reaccumulating because I had purged mm-hmm. like wigs and clothes and corsets and shoes and makeup like twice yeah. already. You know, and so like starting to do that and realizing that I want to find out what this is and. And then at the end of July, I went away. I, I, I went to Cape Cod for a week. And, and I brought two suitcases, his suitcase and her suitcase. And then I never opened his suitcase. 
And I was like, this is fantastic, you know, Wellfleet, Provincetown, Truro, like nobody cares. Like the person at the Cumberland Farm doesn't care if I'm wearing heels. Like they don't care. And it was awkward. Yeah. It was awkward and incomplete and not, I mean, we're not talking about passing, but I went to the, you know, I went to some theater thing and I had like a little bit of makeup on and I'm like, this is great. I'm in Wellfleet and nobody knows who I am and nobody knows where I am or what I'm doing. And I'm doing this. I got some eyeliner, a little bit of lipstick. I'm carrying a bag. I got some little low flats, you know, like two inch heel. And I'm like doing my thing and I'm with somebody I haven't seen in like 30 years and, and I sit down, I'm like, this is great, this is anonymous. And then somebody walks over and says, yeah, we're shooting a, a reality show for HBO mm. about this open mic. And the, one of our contestants is sitting right in front of you. So, <laughs> you know, you might be on film. <laughs> Would you be okay with that? And I just, I start laughing. I go, Jesus, you know, like I drive all the way to Cape Cod to be anonymous on that, you know, at some community theater in Wellfleet. And suddenly I'm going to be on TV. Did you HBO. say yes? And I, I made a joke. I'm like, so I shouldn't throw the fruit I brought. And they said, no, please don't. I said, all right, all right. Well, I guess, you know, there's no getting away from, there's no getting past this. Yeah. There's no getting away from the, of being in the world. Like, this is the message that says, no. Like, you have to get okay with this and get okay with it fast. So I had this great week. And then I came back to my little sleepy town, you know, upstate New York, and... And I was really depressed, like, oh, I wish I lived where I could be out and open. I wish I could do that. And and I had already started therapy for gender identity, and I was dressing for therapy. And I would, like, get dressed and get, and, like, sneak down the driveway to my car and make sure the neighbors aren't looking. I live, like, in the woods, so hardly <laughs> anyone can see anyway, but I'm still terrified. And then drive to the building you know, and like call them and they would come around to the basement and like open the door and I'd go in and like, you know, like some celebrity getting a nose job or something like that. And it took a good month, maybe longer till about six weeks, you know, like I was like, I'm going to go to McDonald's to the drive through Mm. on the way back and get a shake. I'm going to get a fucking shake. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Me. I'm going to do this. And, and and I was coming back, and so I was doing little things like that, but I was still wouldn't get out of the car. And then I was coming back, and a friend of mine called me. I was, like, coming back from therapy, and they were like, oh, so, so-and-so is in town, and they haven't seen you, and everybody wants to see you, and, you, you know, you stopped drinking, and can you meet us at the bar and have lunch? And I was like, you know, I'll meet you in the parking lot. I'd love to say hello but I might not be able to stay. I need to talk to you about something important. I might not be able to stay. And I met them in the parking lot and I came out to two friends and, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to leave now. And they're like, no, no, you got to come inside with us. So I didn't plan to come out that day. It wasn't like anything that was in my mind, but boom, I walked into the bar. I sat on the stool where I had, you know, been so many times in the place that I said I will never come out. If I come out in the town, <laughs> I'm sure as shit not going to go to the bar right. and come out. But there I was, like, at the bar, and I didn't account for the fact that it was a Saturday afternoon and there was going to be, like, two dozen regulars that mm-hmm. I all knew that were going to come in and, be, you know. And I freaked out, but I stayed. And then little by little, you know, all of these Trump MAGA-wearing rednecks hugged me 
and told me they supported me and whispered their secrets in my ear <laughs> and told me how they were bi and they wished they could be trans and this and that and the other thing and men, women, you know, like all this shit happened. And I was just like, Jesus. Um, I hadn't come out in with my recovery community. I hadn't, and I was like, you know, if I could, I came out at the bar and I didn't die. <laughs> like I literally thought pitchforks and torches. Like yeah. I thought people were going to come set my house on fire and it didn't happen. And then the next week I was like, how am I not out with the people that I'm supposed <laughs> to be honest with if I did that like shit? So little by little, meeting by meeting by meeting, place by place, you know, I started to announce my name. And, you know, and it was terrifying. And every one of them was like, sh I was shaking. But every one of those things was okay. That was by the end of August. Of what year? Of of last year, of 2018, by the end of August. And and the only place where I wasn't out was work. Mm -hmm. And so I was, like, dressing as best I could and presenting as best I could, which is really awkward, and we should talk about that later. <laughs> but um, but I, I... And then, and then I was like dialing it way back to go to work because, you know, like that's going to be disruptive and that's a whole thing and that's my reputation and this and that. And I did that for a couple more weeks. It seemed like, it seemed like forever, Yeah. you know, that I, I would be dressed and doing something at eight in the morning, but I have to leave for work at 10. So I need to like undo and then leave for work and come back for work and redo yeah. and get through the next day. And then I got to go to work again and I got to undo. And it was horrible. It was horrible. And I realized like, I can't, I just, there's no, I can't do this. This is, this is, this is insane, you know? And, and so I started having the necessary conversations, you know, I was terrified was terrified because I had I've been in my job for a long time and I didn't want to damage the relationships that I have. Yeah. I th I think I have a reputation. I don't want to ruin I don't want to ruin it. And like and I you know, and I need my job. I got a mortgage. I got things. I got stuff, you know? I you know, and and the work that I do is not so easy to just find a job down the street. So so I was really lucky there was um there has been in recent years much more um, proactive uh, interest in equality, diversity, mm -hmm. and the third thing that I'm forgetting now. But anyway, we have like an officer for that mm. where I work. And so I was able to sit down with them and say, well, you know, if of course it starts with the cliche. A friend of mine is thinking about... You know, are what 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 would they need to know? Are there any protocols? Are there procedures? Are there things that a person should know in order to take these steps? And you know, of course, like ten minutes into the conversation, you know, I'm talking about myself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I know, we know. Okay, and and they were able to like help steward this process a little bit to facilitate like some of the most awkward things, um, which mostly involved having. You know, someone in senior management call my direct supervisors mm -hmm. and say, this is happening and this is how you deal with it. And don't come back and ask 
her right. what she's doing. You come, you, you, this is, this is how this works and this is happening. And, and the, the day after I knew that conversation had happened, boom, I was like hundred percent at work. And they, they said, Oh, I thought we, we thought this was going to happen slowly. I go, Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought so. I thought so too. But you know, the funny thing is I had walked into my supervisor in the, uh, you know, early in the year, early, late August. And I said, you know, I've heard that change is not painful. Resistance to change is what hurts. And he looked at me and goes, hmm, oh, that's very good. I said, yeah. <laughs> so then, then I'm like sitting with them a month later. I go, remember the conversation we had a month ago? Okay. I understand <laughs> that, right? And he said, oh, that's what you meant. That's what you meant. I go, yeah, that's what I meant. Um, so really, you know, it was the people that I work with on a day-to-day basis, yeah. you know, that, that were the most supportive, mm-hmm. that were the most, so the people I'm, in, I'm involved with on a daily basis, uh, you know, I remember saying, you know, hey, all right, we're having a meeting to review things, and at the end of the meeting, there's a little extra time, and I said, does anyone have any questions? And they said, about what? And I lifted my foot up in the air, and I was like, about these shoes <laughs> and the only question was what are your pronouns you know i'm like holy shit where, where has this planet been my whole life where so in that conversation though in that moment was the footwear the only way you were presenting as female no i was wearing like a skirt and earrings and lipstick and and was there a conversation with them in that moment or it, like they had also been not an explicit conversation they kind of watched but these were this was like my like one group of um, of people in the work environment who were like really, really like it happened there. Yeah. It happened there. There was one week early in, in September with the earrings. I decided to wear a pair of earrings and I got a compliment on the earrings. Yeah. And there was, and before that there had been a, comp, a, a comment like, where do you get your nails done? Because they always look perfect. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, right. You noticed my nails. Of course you did, right? You know, and... And so I had gotten like some these little affirmations that told me with these people yeah. in this work group, it's going to be okay. Like there's no issue here. And that was actually emboldened me to make the moves that I needed to make like with the people above me in the organization. So if there were conversations that were happening with supervisors and upper management, do you know were there conversations that they had outside of your presence with these people you interacted with on a day-to-day basis, or it was so really just there, you? There was a director of um, diversity, equality, and inclusion, and there was a specific request. You know, I asked them, you know, she said, I can have the director of HR mm. call the people you report to and tell them that this is happening. So you don't have to walk in and come out to them. Right. Um, and I was like, yeah, why don't you do that? Um, and then I was like, okay, did the conversation happen? Did the conversation happen? Like it was like 10 days. I'm like, geez, you know, what does it take for the? And then she's like, the conversation happened. Do you want me to facilitate a conversation with those people? I said, no, no, I'll do that myself. That's, uh, I don't, I don't need any more help. I just wanted to make sure that that has happened. So, so presumably there were some conversations about me Mm. outside, you know, not in my presence, but, um, you know, here I am. It's 
Were you surprised at the level of support that you got from the people you interact with on a daily basis? I mean, it sounds like you there were indications that they yeah. were going to be There's receptive. There's people that I didn't think that were going to be receptive that turned that have turned out to be really great allies, and yeah. there are people that I am shocked. You know, that there are people that walk to the other side of the hallway, you know, and like look down their shoulder like like I've known you for 20 years. Yeah. So if you feel that way, it's in you. Sorry. Yeah. And that's the perspective I have to have. But, but yeah, so it's been a real surprise. And there's people that were shocked and just didn't know how to react. Mm-hmm. And, and it was really awkward. And then a week later, they came back and said, I'm really sorry, but I just I needed time to process. This was really difficult. And, and the thing that, you know, the thing about it is that early transition is as awkward for the people for for you know was as awkward for me and that's very awkward as it was in and everyone around me very awkward and you know that's the most difficult situation because we are biologically wired to determine gender and that happens in milliseconds mm-hmm. and there are a bunch of physiological evolutionary reasons why that happens so, so when, when somebody is in between, when somebody starts throwing flags and you got to like restart the computer and like calculate again and like what's going on, okay, clothing, okay, you know, hair, um, walk, appearance, gait, you know, there are all these kind of this hierarchy of things that you keep going back to to try and determine the gender. And when you force somebody, when somebody, um, and it's all happening in milliseconds, but when that has, when that loop has to run five or six times, people get really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It makes people uncomfortable. They don't know how to react. Um, I had an experience in Philly at the trans wellness conference where yeah, I mean, it really showed me a lot of my own prejudice and a lot of my own limitations in how I look at other people because when somebody who is overtly blending mm-hmm. gender by design, by intention, it's not awkward in between transition. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, I am not binary, mm-hmm. non-binary. And I'm like, wow, my <laughs> head explodes. You know, my head... My head was like, I don't know, what am I supposed to do? Like, before I even thought about it, I was already like, whoa, <laughs> what, what what, the hell is going on here? And, you know, and I'm coming from the perspective of a trans woman who's trying, you know, who's really working hard on moving forward. And I, I, so I can understand that that ambiguity is the most difficult time. And so that first three months, the first six months of my transition before I guess August, August, September, October, November, December. Yeah, all right, we'll say six months. The first six months before I started hormones, mm-hmm. um, you know, were really, really awkward. And tremendously awkward and feel fearful for me. Um, you know, thank God my ex-wife hadn't moved out yet. And she gave me support as best she could and said, no, that looks like, no, don't wear that. That's, that does not work. <laughs> Do not wear that. Um, here, why don't you wear this? You know, here's a good, here's a better choice mm-hmm. and things like that. 
Um, and, you know, it took a long time before I got comfortable enough to say, no, 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 I'm not wearing that. I'm wearing this. And, you know, and, and, and making my own choices about how I want to present myself and what kind of woman I want to be. Um, you know, so, so that really, it took a really long time to get comfortable, to get comfortable. And somewhere in there, I think a lot of the, a lot of what it takes to pass mm -hmm. is actually not about the outside. It's about the inside. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I keep working on the outside. <laughs> the outside is great. The outside. You. So, you know, and, and it's like getting to the point, realizing to like, I don't, it is very seldom that I'm, that I'm misgendered. It's very seldom. You know, I have never, to date, knock on, soft, squishy, <laughs> blanket top, you know, like I have never had a negative experience with somebody. I think there was one person on the sidewalk that was like, oh, my God, what's <laughs> happening, you know. Um, but, you know, I just like that, that anxiety that phobia that, that there's going to be a throwdown, there's going to be a fist fight. I mean, there's so many, so many experiences early on, like the first time I, I was going to stop to get coffee, like going somewhere, I'm going to get coffee. I'm going to walk into the Cumberland Farms in my town and buy coffee on the way to therapy. Holy shit, I'm going to do this. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm going to do it. There's probably going to be a fist fight, but I'm going to do it. And I walk in, and I'm wearing, like, some groovy girl sneakers and some white capri pants and some kind of top and a bag, and, and, and I'm walking towards coffee land, and this woman is looking at me, and she's staring at me, and she's looking at me, and she turns her head a little bit, and I'm like, this is it. This is, like, this is the moment. Yeah. This is why I was afraid of this. And she goes, who makes those sneakers? <laughs> those are so cool. I'm trying to figure out who are they sketching. No, Solomon's. Right. So I'm like, I'm like, what? Like, no, it's not only did it not happen, but it's like a positive interaction. Yeah. I love those sneakers are fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. I'm gonna make my coffee, buy my coffee, go about my business. What happened? Nothing happened. I had the same experience, um, you know, at some other gas station getting coffee and like, oh my, she's looking at me. Like, she's looking at me. She's going to tell me I'm the problem. <laughs> yeah. I'm, people like me are the problem today. And could I please not come to this store anymore? That's exactly what's going to happen. And she's looking at me funny and she's opening her mouth and words are coming out. And the words are, do you have our coffee discount card? <laughs> and I said, you want me to come back? <laughs> she said, yeah, here you see, buy five, you get one like all these experiences like that. So I've been so lucky that, you know, I have not, I have, I have not had a negative interaction with anyone. Now, part of that, I think, has to do with sobriety because I am unwilling to have negative interactions with people. I just won't. Entertain will not yeah. do it. doesn't happen. I don't bring it. I don't get it. If it happens, I turn it. You know, just that there's no place for negativity in my life anymore. I cut people out of Facebook. I got rid of the cable box. I stopped talking to assholes. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, there's just, I don't care. Oh, you think, well, I, I don't care. I don't care. I don't need to consume that anymore. 
And so I haven't consumed negativity for a long time now. Like, I don't know how that, I don't, I don't, it's amazing that I buy anything because nobody has a chance to sell me anything anymore. Like, I'm not watching these ads for stuff all the time telling me I'll be so much happier if only I had softer toilet paper. And, and so I, I just, I don't allow that. I have positive interactions with people. And I've surrounded myself with a great network of people. Um, so life is really good. It looks really good. And it's, um, you bring tears to my eyes, honestly, in the best way. I would love to keep talking with you as long as you are able time-wise to. Here, I heard you needed six hours to edit <laughs> down to 45 minutes. Exactly. That's what I'm going for. Okay. No, it's fine. I just wanted to pause here. And pause I did. So this is where part one ends, and as a reminder, part two will air next week on Thursday, and that's going to cover a deeper dive into what it's been like with her family, specifically her relationship with her son, in addition, of course, to all the sex and dating questions that I have. But I must say, even with this two hours of conversation that I recorded and the additional two hours of conversation that followed the recording, I feel like we've really just only scratched the surface. Um, So... I've spoken with C about this already that I I do hope she'll come back so we can talk more in depth about some specific sexual things. And she has agreed, but, um, you know, you'll have to wait until next week to find out what remains to be asked. Um, So until then, I wish you a good week and I will speak to you Monday. Be well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sex Communication. Did you dig it? Tell a friend. Subscribe. Leave a review on iTunes. Send an email. I really would love for you to do all of these things. And if you'd like to know more about this project, visit graphicpaint.com slash sexpodcast for additional episodes and background on how this all began. And if you'd like to be a part of this podcast, send an email to sex at graphicpaint.com. Every story and experience is valuable, so why not do an interview or submit your own filthy audio? Be a part of our revolution and help us spread the message of sexy self-acceptance.